This event was recorded live at the 2011 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Ladies and gentlemen, um, I'm delighted to be here uh, with Inger Betancourt, who is the mother of uh, Melanie and Lorenzo. Uh, she was um, the leader of the Green Party, um, the um, Oxygen Verde, uh, when she was um, taken uh, by the FARC and held for six years between February 2002 and six and a half years to June 2008. Uh, during that time, uh, Ingrid was moved constantly, um, denied all privacy, uh, chained round the neck uh, on very many occasions, um, separated from the other prisoners, uh, mentally abused, tried to escape several times, um, and uh, was brought back and then was finally liberated uh, by the Colombian army in a very daring operation, which you said was absolutely brilliantly uh, done. Before I take you back, um, You've been liberated now for three years. And I wonder, in your everyday life, what has changed? How do, you know, how do you operate differently? Well, I would say that everything changed. I mean, the big things and the small things. The small things. Um... OK, we have to put the sound up at the back, please. Sorry. Yes, we, we were trying to be as expansive as possible. OK. <laughs> Uh, no, I was saying that um, I think that everything changed uh, in, in my daily life, even the, of course, the big things, but also the small things. Um, when I wake up in the morning, I'm always, and this has been like this since the day of my liberation three years ago, I open my eyes and I have this moment of just making sure I'm where I am. because. For, for many years, uh, the, the awakening part in the jungle was always very stressful, under a tent with this kind of camouflage thing on top of my head. And then the, the sensation that, well, what will happen today? Are we going to stay here? Are we going to move? So, so having the relief of having a roof on top of my head, uh, it's something that it, it hasn't changed. I, I always feel this kind of gratitude of being in a room with with a bed with blankets uh, to be able to reach water nearby in a, in a bathroom uh, but then there are also uh, things that are that, that change dramatically and is the it's the the relationship with time the the, the consciousness of time um, knowing that I mean, I, I, I think that I, I was so close to, to the feeling of, of the, the risk of dying. Mm -hmm. and, and I had always the sensation that where I hope that if I'm liberated one day, my mother is going to still be alive, my children will be alive. Because, of course, my father died while I was in captivity. So it made a, a very, I think it's like a trauma <laughs> thing. Mm -hmm. So my, I, I, I it's important for me to know how I spend the hours of a day. I need to be sure that, it's, that they are wisely spent, mm -hmm. which means not only giving importance to the important things, like the, the important things are my family, mm -hmm. and sometimes in, in our daily lives, we just think that we'll always be there and just, you know, mm -hmm. I'll call them tomorrow. Well, no, for me it's very important to, to just make sure that I'm there. And a very strong presence throughout the book is your mother. Yes. 
Um, and she's only 76, so she, yes, you know. Yes, yes. So, um, but that decision, one of the earliest decisions you had to make um, when you were incarcerated was proof of life. You had to decide whether to agree. And so that must have been a very double-edged sword because, of course, you don't want to give them the option of publicity, but you wanted to reassure your family. There were many things in that uh, decision. First, it was the only or one of the rare spaces of freedom I still had, which is freedom as the possibility of choosing and the possibility of saying no in this case. For me, it was important to just not play their game. I didn't want to be used as they were using us to just have publicity for, for their organization. So it came to a point where I had to choose between giving information about myself and, and relieving the, the anguish of my family or not playing the game and knowing that everyone was suffering. But, but I thought that it was the only pressure I could put on the guys to release me. And how, I mean, presumably it was incredibly important that in that way you could retain a measure of control because for so much else that was going on, you had no control. And for example, you know, it was obvious that there was guards that were actually nice. There was a young man called Fernie. And of course, immediately it was checked out that he, he was moved. Cruel guards come in. They were changing your guards all the time, weren't they? And, 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 and it seemed to me that actually they got more cruel. The selection of guards got more cruel over the six and a half years. I don't think it was the selection. I think it was just the process of living with people that in the beginning have perhaps some curiosity of who you are. But then by living together in that jungle with no witness, with no law, with that, them having guns and we, I mean, in their hands, the abuse uh, relationship always starts at one point building up. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's something in our brains as human beings that you really have to be careful with because this abuse tendency, the, the feeling of being powerful and being able to, to dominate somebody uh, can bring in us uh, behaviors that are bad, uh, wrong, cruel, uh, sadistic. Yeah. But clearly, I mean, because I mean, you were a very um, strong, uh, powerful uh, woman, you'd had your children and so forth, you were older. I'm thinking back to when Patty Hearst was taken and the whole idea of Stockholm Syndrome. For you, of course, there was never any question of that because you had your own strong identity. And I had culture. Yeah. I mean, what I want to, to say with this is that I had read uh, about situations like the ones I was living, and so I was aware where the dangers were. And one of the dangers for me was, uh, well, I, I would summarize it in a word, which is dignity. So because, of course, when, when you are uh, in captivity and you are confronted to uh, humiliating situations, there's no Stockholm system that, or syndrome that, you can, that can touch you because you can... The, the, the Stockholm Syndrome is when you begin thinking that the guys that have uh, abducted you have a reason and are right. I mean, you are justifying what they're doing. I, I never had that. And also, um, we mustn't forget just how appalling the conditions 
and you were having very little to eat, grubs, you know, the odd egg, you know, nothing for, I mean, and you're incredibly slender uh, as you are. You also have hepatitis now. Mm -hmm. um, and you're incredibly weak at times. Um, where did you get your strength then when you were physically very, very ill and chained? There, I think that we all have in, in ourselves this uh, surviving kit. We, we, we have them, we have it. Um, and it comes with, with things like, for example, memories, happy memories. We, we, we want to get back there to, 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 to happiness, to my children, my, my mother, my father. Um, faith, definitely faith. And interesting though, because when you were uh, taken, you, weren't, you didn't have such strong faith. Well... Or it wasn't so evident in your life. It was, I, I, I think it was very, like, um, opportunistic mm -hmm. in, in my relationship with God. When I had bad times, I could need some help, and then I would pray a little. And then when it was good, of course, it was because of yeah. me. I didn't need to thank anybody. So, so that changed, of course. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but, but it was, um, uh, it, it was like faith gave me the, the uh, let's say, the, the, the frame, the, the mind frame for some reasoning that I wouldn't have done if, if I didn't want to, to answer some questions. Mm -hmm. Because of course, the first thing I thought is, why me? Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I'm a good person. I've done everything right in my life. And why you tried me? To bring, you tried to bring the FARC in. I mean, you actually knew some of the, the, the guerrilla leaders anyway, didn't you? Because you were trying yes. to resolve the situation in Colombia yes. at the time. So exactly, why me? Why me? And so it didn't make sense in my head. I, I thought it was, and so I was very crossed with mm -hmm. God, mm -hmm. thinking if that is the God of justice, he doesn't exist. I don't want to, you don't exist for me. I mean, it was a, a really uh, very angry um, fight with, with God until I understood that perhaps it wasn't the question to ask, because why was not really the question to ask. It was how. Mm -hmm. But that, that, that how to how to deal with this came like two years after abduction. I mean, you need to have a process of of just accepting that this is what happened to you in order to be able to to just shift your reasoning and make something positive about it. Because um, in that in that first period, of course, I mean, there had been people taken before, and also one of the things you found out later on in your incarceration was that there had several of the other prisoners of the FARC had been massacred. So there must have been this sense at any time that something could turn really ugly, uglier than even it was. And so you had to make decisions about how you operated and also when you tried to escape. And presumably, each time you tried to escape, you knew that the chances of you being killed when you got back were stronger. And in fact, I, I was uh, laughing or, well, when, when you were talking because I just had this image of one of my companions uh, he was talking about the Murphy Law. Mm -hmm. Every time we had a problem, he would say, don't worry, anyway, it will be worse. And it was like that. Yeah. I mean, it was something that it was like, uh, sometimes I would say, please don't say it, because it could be like, you know, a spell mm -hmm. on us. Just shut up, don't mm -hmm. say it. <laughs> because it was, you know, yeah. 
And uh, yes, the, the impression that it was every time getting worse, mm -hmm. that of course death was very present, uh, was there. But, but it came to a point, at least for me, I don't know for, for my other companions, but for me, um, it was clear that if that was the life that there was for me, uh, I didn't want it. And so escaping uh, was the only thing that I could be um, comfortable with. Mm -hmm. um, I, I thought it was a right that I had to be free, of course, it was a right, but also it was a responsibility. Mm -hmm and that I could not wait until somebody somewhere found the way to get me out. But you knew, didn't you, quite early on? In fact, it was first it was Dominic de Villepin who you knew. He made one of the early overtures, and you knew about that. So at least you knew, I suppose, that the outside world, there were people working for you. Did you ever despair of that? Well, I knew that France was backing me up. And it was amazing because it was not, I mean, it was France like grassroots France. I mean, people in the streets uh, making rallies and, and really uh, committed to, 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 to just have us out. And it was impressive because we were in another continent, in another world. I mean, it was very st striking mm -hmm. how those two, like, I mean, hearts would link together, the Colombian heart, the French heart, how it just came together. But in Colombia, uh, the truth was that nobody wanted to know about us because we were like the problem. Uh, we, at that moment, there was, okay, okay, the FARC that abducted me was a communist uh, organization, and the government that was running Colombia at the time was a rightist government, in a way extreme rightists, mm -hmm. we could say. And it was clear for the president at the time that he didn't want to negotiate anything with the FARC. It was his bottom line. He didn't want to do anything with them. So uh, whoever would um, demand a negotiation for our freedom was immediately pointed out in Colombia as a traitor. Mm -hmm. You, if you want a negotiation, it's because you are with the communists, because you are against the country, because you are against Colombia. So it, it came to a point where when my family would ask something, they would be, I mean, really, uh, even in the streets, they were aggressed by people uh, insulting them. And now has, in a sense, what happened in Colombia, not just with your incarceration, but the whole response, has it affected your relationship with Colombia? Oh, yes, it has. It, it has not affected the love I have for my country, which is very deep, and it has not affected the dreams I have for my country, because I still dream. But it has affected the way uh, I, I, I see myself interacting with my country. So have you been to Bogota since your release? I've been to Bogota a couple of times. Um, I've decided not to live in Bogota or in Colombia anymore, at least for a while, because I think that there are too many it, passions mm -hmm. going on, and I think we just have to just let it go a little. Um, I also think that I was a victim of many things, one of which was uh, the political interests. Mm -hmm. I think I was seen by many political leaders as a threat to their own ambitions. So they really were very rough on me, I think. So um, I'm going to open up uh, to the audience in a moment, because I'm sure you've got lots of questions. But 
Just on a day-to-day -day basis, when you were incarcerated, I was really struck by the fact that you, you set yourself enormous tasks. Well, I mean, you, you kept yourself incredibly fit when you could. You did your exercises. You did yoga. Yes. You made belts for each member of your family, yes. though a lot of the equipment was taken away from you again. Yes. You made baby clothes yes. for Clara, who was incarcerated with you, with whom you did not necessarily always have a good relationship. Exactly, yes. And she used a biological clock as an argument to become pregnant yes. by one of the gorillas. But you also, um, you also took a kind of bowl from one of the gorillas, uh, or one of the people that was supplying food, that nobody wanted because it was really gross, and spruced it all up and cleaned it, and then had it taken away from you. I mean, yes. all those small meannesses, <laughs> You managed to transcend all those, didn't you? Uh, you learned from everything. And you learned f especially about you, your limits. And I think one of the things that are, imp I mean, we all learn. You don't need to go to the jungle or being abducted to learn those things. I mean, we all learn. And I think the problems we face in life are tailor-made yeah. for us to learn what we have to learn, I think. But in my case, uh, it was important to learn not to be reactive. Yeah. I mean. You know, you have people always knowing what button to push yeah. in order to have your reaction. Uh, that's, you have to just... And the other thing you did was you had LaRousse's Illustrated Dictionary. Oh, that was my university, my college. Because, um, of course, endless hours of boredom. So uh, when I realized I could have a dictionary, and in the dictionary I could just, you know, get to open a page and then I would read something, and it was about cosmology, let's say. And then I would think, OK, that brings me to this Athenian whatever uh, philosopher. So I would go to his name and then to another name. And, then, and by the end of the day, I was like, oh, I've learned so much. So have you found new, have you found new interest by reading that dictionary? Well, you know, um, that experience made me realize how thirsty I was to get back to college. Really? And that's something I'm going to do. And what are you going to study? I'm going to study theology. Let's put the lights <laughs> up. Lights up, please. Lots of times. First of all, gentlemen in the back, um, uh, we'll need to wait for the microphone unless you're going to shout out. Anyone over here for next? Lots of hands. Can we get microphones up there in readiness? Thank you. Fire away. Um, a strange question, but is there anything at all you miss about those six years in the jungle? Yes, it's not a strange question. Thank you for asking. I miss lots of things, and particularly, I miss my family of the jungle, which are my companions that, that were with me in captivity. And it's always like a ray of sunshine when I take my, my Blackberry and I find a message from one of them. And either, in, in weekly basis, I have you know, uh, information about one of them. And yes, I, I mean, they were my family. And, and the sucker that you got from them, particularly uh, latterly from another uh, incarcerated Mark, who yes. there was an actual possibility that there was going to be a romantic entanglement. But it... Yes, but, um, well, I think we were very lucky to have found ourselves in, 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 in a moment in our lives where we could just be sensitive to the other's pain. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that that was the, 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 the thing there. And, um, well, w what happened is that once we were liberated, we were confronted to the real world. And the real world w was our families, our, our uh, partners in life. Yeah. And I think that 
of all of us, I'm trying to think, we all divorced. All divorced. All then. divorced. And it's sad because I, 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 I can testify that really all of us, we were, I think we were missing our partners. Mm -hmm. So once we, we, we got back to, to to, to normal life, just, well, discovering that, of course, they had made their lives. <laughs> we, we were there for six years, seven years. Well, I was six years and a half, but my companions have been there for 12 years. So, of course, there was nothing. It was like a hurricane. Mm. Everything was swept. Except your children and your mom. Well, and your sister. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hands up here. First of all, yes, one hand up. Yep. Whoever's got the microphone, go for it. Ingrid, um, just a quick question. As you are aware, uh, there are still army and police officers kidnapped, held in captivity. What can we do as ordinary citizens to help their release? Mm. Thank you for the question. Because, because if, if this has a meaning to be here, uh, with you all today, perhaps that is the the the, the really meaning or, or the purpose of talking about this. I mean, there are 20 of my companions, about 68 we were in, in a moment, that are still in the jungle, facing, I am sure, uh, conditions much more appalling than the ones I had to face. That, that is very hard to believe because you had such appalling conditions yourself. But I think because of what happened, because they had been a, a several attempts of escape, then they have been two operations of re rescue operations that have been successful. So what, whatever uh, they're living, I suppose it's, it's just true hell. I mean, they must be chained, uh, forced to uh, uh, walk in a daily basis, uh, little food, because I know the army is surrounding uh, the, the where they are, um, and the very dramatic part of this story is that when some of us, we were in, in captivity because we became uh, public figures and people would talk about us, then there was a pressure of trying to do something to, to release us. So those uh, two rescue attempts uh, or operations were done and were successful. But now, uh, as you were saying, the persons that are still there are not really known. No. I mean, they are like everybody. I mean, and Do you think if President Sarkozy had not put so much effort into it to persuade the Colombians they had to move, do you think he'd have been there for longer? Yes, I'm sure. Oh, I mean, I have no doubt. I mean, I think that we were in that moment there was a chain of events that produced our liberation. Mm -hmm. And one of the uh, key points were the involvement of President Chavez of uh, Venezuela. Because in Colombia, President Chavez is like a person that people don't really like. Mm -hmm. It's like a, somebody that people don't understand. And when, but President Chavez, because he had this leftist kind of government, 
could have the links needed to be able to talk with the guerrillas. And in fact, he did. He mm. talked with Madulanda, with the chiefs of the guerrillas, and then he negotiated the release of, I mean, most, I mean, half of my companions. Yeah. That's how they were released in the first time. But when the Colombian government understood that this was going to happen and that perhaps Chavez was going to have the trophy of releasing us all, then they, yeah. then they decided, no, we're not going, Chavez, going to have this huge, uh, media attention. So I think that was a major point that explains how things went. And I think that Chavez wouldn't have had this media attention if, if President Sarkozy hadn't taken seriously his proposals. And in, in that sense, because then it became an international issue of how to make this happen, then uh, I think that moved not only the Colombian government, but also the American government. And them together put that operation in place at Frida's. There's another hand up at the top and then one down at the bottom. Yes, take the microphone, please. Thanks. What's your opinion of the international hostages who were taken from the lost city and got back in touch with their captors? Are you familiar with the... There was a group taken from near Cartagena and they became friends with their kidnappers and actually went back to visit them. Well, that's so human. I mean, um, you see, one of the things that, that, you, that you realize when, when you are in captivity is that, you, how to say this, uh, it's the circumstances of life that brought you together. I mean, it's, you, you, you cannot, it would be too easy to say the bad guys are over there. I mean, there are bad guys here and there. In each one of us, there is a good side and a bad side. And I could understand, yes, that they could. I understand that people would not understand, because of course it's something that, how come? I mean, they were doing wrong things to you. They were, you know, and, and there you go back. But at the same time, depending on the kind of relationship you develop with your captors, um, that could happen. Could you ever imagine seeing any of your captors again? Well, yes, I have thought about that. If I met them again, what would be my reaction? And I think I would just, I think I would be happy to see some of them. Perhaps not all of them. <laughs> I have still a forgiveness process to, to accomplish, but, um, you see, when, when, I, um, when I was freed, the first thing, I, I remember in that plane that brought us to freedom, one of the things that I said to myself was, I'm going to be free physically, but I need to be free morally. Mm -hmm. And that freedom will only come through forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So that was a decision, like, I will forgive. But of course, your brain goes one way and your heart goes another way. It's not easy to put them together. And when um, I got the information, the news came to me that Mono Hohoi, which was the leader and he was the commander that, that was uh, responsible for our capture. He was a hard guy, very, I mean, okay. He was a hard person. Um, and when, when they told me that he had been killed by the army, I had this kind of sensation 
that it didn't make me happy. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't have any relief or happiness or satisfaction. Just felt, oh my God, that's so sad. I mean, everything ended up in this bloodshed. Mm -hmm. I mean, all those. And then I thought, well, I'm so glad that I, this is what I'm feeling because now I put my brain and my heart together. I'm not feeling. We're with the pink jumper on down here. And anyone from this side? Not neglecting this side. Gentleman up there with his hand up. You can keep your hand up so the mic gets to you. Thank you. Yes, can we have your question, please? Um, very nice to hear somebody say something positive about uh, President Chavez. Um, could you just, with your political hat on, um, I'm thinking back to the 60s and the post-Guevara generation that gave birth to movements like the FARC. I'm thinking of the Miristas in Chile, the, the, the Tupamaros, the people in Argentina, Uruguay, of which there were many very valiant young intellectual leaders. Um, do you think there's any um, ideals that you could support still left somewhere inside the FARC, or is that, have they just gone too far the other way? Well, I would say that um, I, I can only talk about my own experience, you see, because it's I, I, cannot, I, I cannot generalize. But uh, what I saw about the FARC was not the kind of revolutionary people that um, perhaps I was expecting to, to, uh, to, to, okay. to yeah. Uh, I found that they were driven by money. Mm -hmm. That was the, I mean, focus. Of course, they, they, they came from backgrounds that were very difficult. They were peasants um, in, that lived in remote areas uh, where the drug trafficking is like, it's like, uh, I mean, the thing that happens in the jungle is the, 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 the drug uh, production. Mm -hmm. It's the world where they are brought in. And I, I think that what I saw in, in the FARC is something that I have seen also now that I'm back, which is this kind of resentment of youth that feel excluded mm -hmm. from happiness, mm -hmm. happiness in terms of consumption. They feel it's their right to have it the same way. To have the same yeah, things. Yeah. The, the iPod, the iPad, mm -hmm. the, the, the uh, trainers, the mm -hmm. nice thing. I mean, we, we think that those people over there in the jungle, of course they won't think about the nice watch. Well, they want the nice watch and the nice trainers and the nice pants and they want the iPod, the MP3s, and no, no, I mean, they have, because they, ha they, they have been fed with the same information our kids have been fed, with, with the difference that they, they know they don't have access to that happiness. Because the word, world we're in is selling us that happiness is having those things. Mm -hmm. So um, this building them a great deal of aggressivity yeah. and frustration. So, so I would say that the, the normal guerrillero mm -hmm. is a peasant that, that feels upgraded becoming a FARC mm -hmm. member because he has a gun and he can be respected and, and it's something that makes him feel part of, of an organization and that he can 
it's like a profession where he can climb mm -hmm. uh, the, the grades and become a commander and have all what he wants, which we could talk about it. Uh, but in the other hand, the leaders, mm -hmm. I think they have been losing their political drive. Mm -hmm. And I think they are protecting the life they have today. And they're not really seeking for fundamental changes in Colombia that we need them. Because Colombia truly needs fundamental changes. Gentlemen over there, please. You just answered the question. Okay, more hands up. Yes, there's uh, two hands down here in the front. Could you keep your hand up, please? Thank you, just so the microphone knows where you are. Yes, Ingrid, how do you see your political career future in Colombia? And the other question, perhaps You're both Colombian. Do you regret, do you regret having sued the Colombian nation after? Okay, okay, okay. Well, those are linked. Those questions are linked together. Uh, perhaps people don't know, but I'm gonna just s s summarize. When when I was uh, freed, uh, I uh, asked the Colombian government for compensation for my uh, years of captivity. In Colombia, there is a law that protects victims of terrorism, and the victims of terrorism are entitled to compensation, financial compensation. Um, and there is like a, a degree in which, I mean, the number of years, the hours, uh, and, and it, you can apply to a certain sum, it's money. Uh, and this is a right that we all had as victims. And in fact, my, all my companions applied for, for those compensations. But when it came to me applying for those compensations, the government at the time reacted in a way that was, uh, they made a scandal of it, saying how dare she ask for compensations when we liberated her. Um, and it, 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 was, it was a very difficult moment for me and my family because the kind of words that were used and the aggressivity and the attacks we received were just amazing. I mean, I, to, to put you an example, um, I don't know if you've heard of, if you remember Pablo Escobar, which was this uh, drug dealer and he was killed and everything. When, when, when there was this issue about Pablo Escobar and people were talking about Pablo Escobar, which was a killer, a murderer, a drug trafficker, everything, nobody talked or, or referred to him with the words they referred to me. I mean, it was just something that it was s such out of proportion that it made me think that, of, of course, it was not, it, of course, there, there were political interests for me not to come back to Colombia. That was, I mean, evident. Uh, but, but what I felt is that I was facing a country that was denying the right to be a victim to, to its citizens. Um, and and I, I, I thought it was unfair and horrible. I just felt very bad. So of course, because of that, um, I would say that 
I would do anything for, for my country, but I'm not sure that getting back into politics would be a good thing for me or for my country because you have to be able to work with people that understand things, that are sensible and sensitive to the same things you are, uh, that, that can relate to the same issues. And I think that Colombia, we're just like, sometimes I feel that we, we are like losing perspective and that we are, because we have been in, in, in a country with violence for, for a century, uh, we, we have lost the ability of feeling pain for the others. We, we're rough. We're, it's a rough country. We're very rough. Um, and we are always uh, trying to uh, find reasons not to f feel um, pain for the others. For example, if a woman is raped in Colombia, they will say, oh, she had a miniskirt, it's her fault. Or if a priest is killed in Colombia, they would say, oh, he probably had a, something to do with the paramilitaries. Or if a peasant is killed in Colombia, oh, he was probably dealing with the guerrilla. I mean, wait a second. Those are victims. Don't, don't, don't try to, to just build up on the reasons why they were killed. Just, just I mean, you know, it's like we have lost the ability of being solidaire with victims. And this is for me something that it's just, we have to work on that, I would say. Questions? Yes, I saw some hands up on the left. I thought there was somebody over there that had their hand up and they go, yes, the girl with the dark top on. Um, since you were trying to resolve the situation with the FARC, did you ever talk to them about how it could be best to, to solve this conflict? Yes, I tried. It was difficult because they were, they were always very keen in not letting the, um, this kind of, of uh, dialogue mm -hmm. get into place. Um, so whenever I would talk politics with one of them, they were in the defensive mode. And when I had the opportunity to talk with one of the commanders, um, one of the things I realized is the lack of um, reflection they had on what was going on in Colombia. In a way, I, I think that what happened is that this organization became, became so much a military organization uh, into doing things, into, into uh, doing military actions to confront the government that they lost the ability to reflect on political issues, which at the end are the most important for, for, for them as a revolutionary group, if they still are, which is my question mark. More questions? Yes, down in the front here, can we get the microphone? And, and, and a gentleman there, but the uh, lady here first, please. Having been away from your children for such a long time, how easy was it to get to know them again and feel comfortable? Wow, we talked about yeah. this with Christy before. Um, I mean, all moms and all dads too will relate to me on this. When, when I came back from the jungle, uh, I found two adults. I had left a teenager, Melanie, she was 16, and my son was 13. And I wouldn't say he was a teenager then. He was a boy, beginning to be a teenager, but not quite. 
So when I came back, I had in front of me those two amazing adults. Amazing. They had fought. They had, I mean, they had overcome their fear, their anger. Their... And I discovered two uh, persons that I admire. So it's, I, I was in front of a very different situation from the one I, I left because when I, when I was at home with them before, I was calling the doctor if they were ill. I was talking to the teacher to see if they had done their homework. And now I was confronted to people that I was admiring. So I was intimidated. That was my first reaction. And then I, I could see that it was easier with my daughter because she was a, a woman and, and, and we could relate together in simple things. When I came back, it, I had no clothes to wear. I, I, was, I had only my uniform. I, so the first thing I told her is, I need to wear something. I need to change myself. Do you have something? And she said, yes, of course, we're the same size. You take this. And so immediately, the, the, the connection was there. And it has been like this for, for since that moment. I mean, we talk about everything. We're best friends. With my son, he wanted me to just acknowledge that he was a man. And it was a process for me to understand that many things had changed. Um, I, I, I think that I, the first year, I just tried to open the doors because I, I was feeling that he had shot all the things to just, you know, leave me alone. I'm, I'm, I'm a man by myself. I don't need your advice. And of course, I wanted to be there. So it, it, was, it has been a, an incredible, beautiful, uh, constructive like path that we've gone together and the last time we we had like a little like this uh fight he he said to me you know mom this is the best exercise because every time we have an argument afterwards we're so much closer and that's mm. yes gentlemen behind there you like to see the microphone Well, thank you, Ingrid, for your talk. My question, have you attempted any comparison with the former Middle Eastern hostages, you know, like Terry Waite or John McCarthy? They've published their books. Have their accounts and their recovery from captivity assisted you in any way? Yes, I have met them. We have been talking. Uh, yes, it's, it's very important, I think, for whoever has gone through this kind of situation to be able to relate to somebody else in a comparable situation. Because even though the situations are different, I mean, they were in, in Lebanon, uh, they were uh, held in, in apartments, uh, the conditions were completely, the relationship with the guards were different, the guys were always uh, covered. I mean, we were in the jungle, open air, the guys, we could see their faces. It, it, it's different. <coughs> there are things that are the same. And it's important to have somebody to talk uh, to. Uh, 
just talking about, as it were, the, the recovery process, um, you, you started writing this book nine months after you came out. Um, in that nine months, I mean, you were very keen not to rush to write. But what happened during those nine months? Did you have professional counselling or did you do it with your family? Well, the first months, I thought I needed to devote it, those months to just relink with, with my children. That was my obsession when I came back home that I just understood that I had lost everything. My marriage, my job, my everything. My country in a way too. I felt that there was... So I, I thought I, I have to just at least build my relationship with my children. So that was my concentration field for, for those first months. And when I start writing, uh, I discovered that uh, the emotions that were coming up to surface with my writing needed help. So Skype. I was in a place where, of course, I could not have a, a person to talk to, a professional in that field. So uh, I related to this person through Skype. So I could see him, and, and we would meet in a weekly basis. And he, he was very important mm -hmm. to understand. And to understand not only my, my emotions, but also to understand what was going around me, mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the reactions of other fellow hostages that had been in, in captivity with me. Uh, of m my family, of so many things that you have to deal with once you are in, in freedom. So, if so you have the, yeah, you need you, help. You need help, and of course, you, as you say, you were working all this through, because here you were back out, and you said your marriage was falling apart, and your children presumably had to deal with that as well, as well as you having to deal with that. Yes, and it was sad, because my, my ex-husband was somebody we loved. Mm -hmm. I mean, my children loved him, it was not their father, was a second marriage, but and I loved him, mm -hmm. and suddenly he was into this wanting to have a divorce with all kind of nasty things, all the worst things of a divorce we've gone through. I mean, uh, accusing uh, horrible things, anyway, horrible things. But the thing I mean, was that I suppose it's all relative because you'd had this dreadful time in the jungle. So I suppose you would just say, well, divorce, I can deal with divorce yes. if I'm having to deal with actually staying alive from one hour to the next. Yes, but sometimes you, you would, of course, if you could choose, you would say, spare me this one. Yeah. yeah. You know? But okay, no, we had to confront that. So, so, so you, you need to, um, I mean, it's not because you have suffered a lot that you have to, the strength to suffer more. I mean, it, it always is a new exercise in building strength mm -hmm. because it gets you by another angle. So you have developed the muscle to just yeah. face this way, but you haven't developed the muscle for this one. So I, I think that the wisdom in, in this kind of situation is just to, whatever comes, uh, it's a process of learning. So in the writing of the book and having help with a counsellor via Skype, by putting it down, I mean, was the remembering awful or, was the, or you know, was the remembering very, very hard and had you forgotten a lot of things and did you speak to the others? Well, I, I think I forgot many things 
And sometimes when I talk with my fellow hostages, they bring back things that I don't remember. So I, I'm sure there are things that I just wiped out mm -hmm. from, from my memory. But I think that the, that the, the memories related to emotions were there very strongly. And of course, it was, it was painful, no doubt. I, I would write with a box of Kleenex because, I mean, it, it, there were moments where it was like opening a faucet. I mean, it was just, I was, I couldn't just hold myself. But um, the process of writing, you see, it, it, with writing is something very special because when you talk, your brain is in a mode, but when you write, your brain is in another mode, which is deeper mm -hmm. in, in the capacity of analyzing things. And so I just really think that I'm so glad I, I could write. A yeah. uh, question up there, yes? You spoke about the, the search for forgiveness in order to be truly free yourself. Your loved ones, have they undertaken a similar journey? Those that lived and breathed the six and a half years with you? And are they having much success? Yes, uh, I think we all have had. I think it's one of the discussions at home when we are all together. And curiously, it is easier to forgive. <laughs> I'm going to say this. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm I, I want to say it, but I think I should say it, yes. Uh, it's easier to forgive the enemy than to forgive the people that you love. I mean, in this whole story, uh, of course, there are the ones that abducted me, which were what they were, whatever we think they were. But there were also those people we loved that were not there when we needed them. Mm. And that's, I, I, when, I, when I look at, at what's happening in, in now in our family, that is perhaps the most difficult that we just have to master to just get to the bottom of it and forgive all of it. I mean, all, all, all. it's difficult to forgive those we love. Gentlemen, right at the back. Hi, I was backpacking around South America last year and I didn't get to Colombia, but everybody I met on the road who'd been to Colombia had nothing but good to say about the country. How do you view Colombia now? And where do you think it goes from where it is now? I think Colombia has, has evolved in a positive way. I think that Colombians are feeling safer. I think that the, the country has mastered a lot of its, let's say, critical issues. Um, but I think there is a division in Colombia between people that can, that can be protected in a way, that are part of the system, that have a name, that can go to a judge and make them their case be heard, and those who do not exist, and it's 50% of the population. People that are mostly working or living in the, in the countryside, peasants, uh, that are persecuted by all kind of violent, illegal armies that are after their work, because of course Colombia is a huge country, and those peasants are uh, 
what they are doing really is transforming jungle into uh, agricultural land. And that has been happening for centuries. And there are people that uh, make money, uh, illegal money, in depriving those peasants from their, their work. We have two million displaced Colombians in the cities because of that. So, I mean, I cannot say that Colombia is the country I dream it would be. I think there are things that we have to change. The heart of Colombians have to change, the, the ability to, to just have compassion, because it's the only way we will be able to make sacrifices. And the sacrifices have to come from the people that are in the upper level of society. And that's something that I don't see happening because I think we are very greedy. Yes, in the lady in the center. You say you hope to study theology. I'm wondering if that is um, part of your healing process, but whether you have other um, hopes for that study as well, and beyond. Well, I'm going to tell you something. When I told my mom that I wanted to study theology, she was like, oh, you're going to become a nun. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said, no, 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 not at all. No, it's just um, pure curiosity. I mean, I find myself in a moment in my life where I have this time available to do things that I wanted to do. And I remember in the jungle thinking, if ever, if ever, I have the chance to just decide what I want to do, I want to get back to college. I want to, I want to, for example, one of the things I said, for example, too, was I want to learn to play an instrument. So I'm having guitar classes now. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Inga Betancourt, an inspirational story. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you buy anything at the book festival, buy this. It's amazing. And Inga's going to be signing in the signing tent straight away. So I've got a rusher there now. More podcasts, videos, and live recordings of author events can be found at www.edbookfest.co.uk.